Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today with me is Nick Gosling. We have a special guest on today for you, Jonathan Bach. Jonathan is founder and president of Grace Hill Media, which has marketed more than 500 major motion pictures and television projects to Christian audiences worldwide. He's the producer of Hillsong, Let Hope Rise, and he is also the member of the Producers Guild of America and an elder at Bel Air Church in Los Angeles. Jonathan is with us today to discuss his new book, co-authored with Phil Cook, The Way Back, A Hard Look at the Decline of Christianity in the West. Their approach to the book is in many ways a marketing perspective because of their background. So uh, I'm really excited to have Jonathan on to talk. Jonathan, uh, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Happy to be here. So, uh, tell us a little bit about the thesis of your book, how how you came to feeling compelled to write it, and uh, let let our listeners know um, what kind of approach you take. Yeah. So, Phil and I, um, as you rightly mentioned, are are both media and marketing guys. Phil is, for those of you who don't know who Phil is, Phil Phil is a uh, he, he's a fixer of television ministries, uh, churches, and nonprofit organizations. Um, if you've got a communications problem in one of those areas, you 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 call Phil. Um, he we we like to joke that uh, his business card should say um, Phil Cook helping Christian television suck less, <laughs> um, and and that's that's what Phil is really good at. As as you uh, very kindly um, shared with with your audience. Um, I've been marketing film and television for the better part of 18 years now, and we're both deeply committed Christians. And we have spent a lot of time um, over those. We've been friends for about 15 years or so. And over those years, we, we've seen just even in our own lifetimes, uh, and even uh, at a precipitous rate in the last 15 years, just a, um, a real decline in the influence of Christianity in American culture. And it's uh, been a topic of conversation uh, for us around fire pits and uh, on vacations together. And at some point, we just decided, um, why why don't we take a stab at writing a book together uh, about this issue? And we really started from a a place of this being uh, a PR problem. So we we look at it kind of this way, which is um, there's a there's a disconnect between how we as Christians view ourselves and how non-Christians view us. Okay. And to me, the most obvious example of that is the fruits of the spirit. You you know, the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, et cetera. Um, Those are the things that we're supposed to be known for that list, right? Mm -hmm. Which of those words would you say that non-Christians used to describe the Christian community? Probably be tough to come up with one. <laughs> right. Okay. 
so that's that's exactly how we felt like that's a, that's a real problem right and that's a real marketing problem so we kind of again because we're marketers we kind of looked at this as um a pr problem and and a fixable pr problem and so you know i mean we're the kind of guys who if you're if your house is small you you market it as cozy right like everything can be fixed with marketing <laughs> that's uh that's our approach and so as we started writing this book and and really digging into all of these places where um with different cultural issues that we paint ourselves in a corner we got about, I would say, about two-thirds of the way into writing a book, and it just didn't feel like we were hitting the nail on the head. It didn't feel to us like uh, we were really getting at the root of the problem. So what we decided to do was, was go back and approach it from a research point of view. And what we did was we went to all the biggest researchers in the country, Gallup, Pew, Barna, Lifeway Research, places like that, who, who do lots of different uh, studies on behavioral habits of, of, of Christians, and, and started to look at who is the Christian community. Let's look at, at our behaviors as maybe a, a jumping off point for this. So from a, from a movie marketing point of view, if you ask Americans, um, do you like movies? Like 99% of people, of course, are going to say, uh, yeah, I like movies. So that, that kind of information does not help us at all, right? So how we measure that behavior is, do you show up to movie theaters, right? And uh, do you go once a month to a movie theater? You're a fan, right? That's the person that, if you're marketing a movie, that's who you're interested in, not in people who never show up to movie theaters. So we kind of took the same approach with um, uh, Christians and said, let's look at our behaviors where we're spending our time, effort, and money and see what we find. And what we discovered uh, was, frankly, it was jaw-dropping to us. So if, if you look at the, the, the Christian community uh, in America, essentially, depending on what's the question asked and who's the researcher that's asking it, you get anywhere from 70 to 80% of the country self-identifying as a Christian. Now, again, that may not... Uh, manifest itself in like they're going to church every single Sunday, but they're, they, you know, maybe it's just historically or Christmas and Easter or whatever, but they, they will call themselves Christian. So let's just say 75 to 80% of, of Americans call themselves Christian. How many are showing up to church on a regular weekly basis? The Hartford Institute found it's only 20% of Americans are showing up. Is that 20% of Americans or 20% of the self-reported we call ourselves Christians? 20% of Americans. Okay. So that's a big disconnect between what we say already of, of who's identifying and, and who's showing up. The rule of thumb now in church for a regular, what they would call people who just, you know, you know you, we all know what a regular is. That is three out of every eight Sundays makes you a regular now in American churches or 19 whole times a year. The numbers get worse, though, when we start to look at different things like prayer. 63% of Americans, uh, Gallup found, found that pr they would say that prayer is essential. And you look at that and you go, okay, that's good. But then you look at the corollary of that, and that means 37% don't find it essential at all. Of the regular churchgoers who are going to church, so we're talking about those 
you know, three out of every eight uh, Sunday kind of folks. 40% of them, this is Lifeway Research's number, 40% of them rarely or never open the Bible at all. And then the tithing numbers um, are also atrocious, not surprisingly. Only 10% of regular church attenders are giving 10%. So you look at those statistics and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, all of those things that non-Christians say about us all the time, hypocritical, phony, you, you know, you, we all have heard those things before. Uh-oh, these things are true. And there's where we really got into, now what do we do about it? We have a marketing problem, or we have, I think you, in, in uh, one part of the book you might have mentioned, is you have sort of a sales force problem, like the people that are quote-unquote selling Christianity or our Christian faith, and I realize that's just a uh, simplistic way of saying it, but they are not uh, selling it very well because of the behaviors. Yeah, I mean, we we are we are we have essentially become the fat guy at the gym who's lecturing everybody else about what good health is, mm. and so <clears throat> we want to tell people how they should live their lives, but we're not living it ourselves at all. Mm -hmm. And so, think of it this way: if you went to a meeting at Coca Cola and three quarters of the people around the table. We're drinking Pepsi. What would you think about Coke? Hmm. And that's where we are. Yeah. So one of the so to the title of your book, "The Way Back." What it, what is it that we're trying to get back to? Well, I think an authentic Christianity, a, a Christianity that uh, people look to and are inspired. I mean, just again thinking through this through the lens uh, of of marketing, um, researchers have found that. Um, conversion happens, and I'm not just talking about religious conversion, I'm talking about any conversion, um, you know, diet and exercise is an example of conversion, right? That conversion happens when you see somebody and you want to be them. You want to get what they have. You want to, that's what you want. And so if you look at that list of that, that Christians are essentially <clears throat> all talk uh, and no action, right? That we're all, we're, we're big hat and no cattle, Right. Who wants to be part of that group? Yeah, nobody wants to be part of a group of people who are, you know, like like you said, the fat guy at the gym telling other people to to get into shape. Uh, what what would you say about the people who say, well, I'm an authentic Christian? Maybe they grew up out of a more moralistic, pietistic uh, tradition where having yeah. having things together uh, or all in order, you know, all their ducks are in a row. They, they appear at least on the surface to have their morality together. And maybe, maybe, maybe by and large, some people did or do. And I mean, I think that's true. Uh, but they're just saying, well, we're just being authentic. And so we're being more real. We're committed to Jesus, but we're not going to pretend that we have, have our stuff together. Um, and so maybe that's the form of authenticity, like the fat guy at the gym saying, yeah, I'm fat too, but let's go guys. Like maybe not the preacher at you kind of, you know, authenticity isn't about, well, we've got love, joy, peace, patience, and all of that pretty consistently. I mean, authenticity means that we're admitting that we don't do that consistently. Well, listen, I th I'm sure there's a huge segment of your audience that's sitting there listening to this saying like, well, hold on, I show up to church regularly. I'm in my Bible every morning. I pray, I tithe. And to those people, I say, you know, of course, God bless you and keep on climbing. Good, good for you. And, um, you know, amen. But you have to understand how damaging um, the complacency, the inaction of the majority of Christians out there, how damaging that is to your own ministry and your own 
um, way that you interact with people. It's a little bit like this. Um, if you remember back a few years, um, Major League Baseball had a, a huge PED scandal, steroid scandal. Now, was every single um, baseball player using performance-enhancing drugs? Of course not. It was, it was a minority of players. But that behavior tarred the entire business. It was damaging to not only to the players, but to Major League Baseball in general. And so the same thing is happening here is um, that Christians who aren't living up to the way that we're called to live, to obedience uh, service, to um, trans transformed lives, it's doing tremendous damage to the people who are. Yeah, so the people, even though the people who call themselves Christians, let's just say for sake of argument that half of them aren't really doing all of this, you know, regular, you know, what we would call regular church attendance and exhibiting the fruit of the spirit or living the Sermon on the Mount or whatever, uh, that the people who were, were the committed, uh, we can still look at it and say, there's still a problem. That's essentially what you're saying, right? Yeah. So my, my, my writing partner, Phil, a couple months ago was on a plane and he was uh, sitting up in first class and ended up talking to the guy next to him who um, uh, was a head of a company. And they got talking and it was a long flight. And Phil asked him if he had ever considered being a Christian. The guy was not a Christian. He asked him if he'd ever considered becoming a Christian. He said, yeah, I, I actually have. But, you know, I have, I have two vice presidents in my company um, who are Christians. But one of them is having an affair with his uh, assistant. And the other one, every single week, he gets totally hammered. He's completely drunk all the time. And so I just look at that and go, well, it's not really changing their life. So why should I get involved? And, and there the damage is done. And uh, so that, that is a tremendous, tremendous problem for uh, all of Christianity is that it's just not, an, it's not very appealing to people on the outside because they're seeing um, it not transform other people's lives who are saying, uh, who claim to be a Christian. Jonathan, do you think in some ways this is kind of a perennial problem? I mean, because if we look back to like throughout Christian history, even from the ancient world and even back into ancient Judaism, pre-Christianity, it's sort of a recurring theme in the Bible that the the uh, inappropriate actions of God's people reflect negatively on on God and and on what the community is supposed to be. So, is there some sense in which this this isn't really a new problem? It's just a repackaging of a problem that's been around f for all of recorded history. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we look at it, we look at it and 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 say, okay, idol worship is uh, something that's applicable. Here, okay, and uh, we, we sort of look at that as antiquated, right? Uh, it's an Israelite problem, right? Um, the, the the idea of idol worship is like it's almost like a relic of the past, right? Like uh, indentured servitude or leeching, right? <laughs> um, but in reality, Phil and I, and, and this is a major part of our uh, the findings of our book, we actually think that American Christians. Um, are the single most sophisticated idol makers in the history of humanity because we've made an, uh, an idol that has the veneer of God. Um, but it's an idol nonetheless because, it, you know, he doesn't mind that I only go to church 19 times a year or less, right? He's a, it's a God that's okay with us not tithing or not reading the Bible and has no problem with us, you know, not praying. He's, 
he's fine with me divorcing uh, at the exact same rate as non-believers. He, he doesn't obey, demand obedience from us. Um, it's a, basically a God that conforms to our view of the world, not the other way around. And so that's why we think it's, it's really just ultimately comes down to exactly what you're getting at, which is, this is idol worship. There's a quote early on in the book, and I'll just, I'll just read the quote here. Maybe the problem with Christianity today isn't a lack of influence, it's that we're chasing it in the first place. And that's the end of the quote. Um, shouldn't shouldn't be Christians be seeking influence, or is there is there a problem with the word influence? Well, I think what you have to do is ex- exactly right is to look at the er- the word influence. And what I think is really quite extraordinary about Jesus himself is that he doesn't seem to be all that interested in influence at all. And every time. He gets to a place where, um, as you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every time he gets to a place where the crowd swells to you know huge proportions, or they want to claim him as king right now and have him take over, like all of these moments that feel like here he's going to you know it's going to turn right here right now, he retreats. He heads into the desert or heads up a mountain to pray and be alone, um, he, or he gets on a boat and goes across. Like he seems to be. Um, going out of his way from taking those moments where he could be tremendously influential and f- move the conversation or move the uh, culture in a different way. And he doesn't seem to chase that at all. As a matter of fact, he seems to recoil from it until it's the proper time for that to happen. So I look at the American church and um, part of our problem for years is that we've been chasing influence. And we've been chasing it in all the wrong ways. Um, and one of the most obvious ways is where we find ourselves politically now, which is you have evangelical Christian leaders who have, uh, again, whether you're a fan of Trump or not, he does not seem, he seems like an incongruous fit <laughs> on, on a personal level um, with American Christianity. And yet a lot of evangelical leaders have fully embraced him. And I think the reason for that is this is the short path, uh, the short track to influence, to changing culture. He's going he's gonna to pass the laws and get the judges that we want. Um, and, and therein lies part of our problem, is that we have essentially made American Christianity synonymous uh, with a political party. And by doing that, again, thinking from a marketing point of view, Politics is super divisive, right? The second you uh, bring up politics, you've alienated 50% of the population. So by making our faith essentially aligned with a party, you're cutting off half the population who's automatically saying, that's not for me. Jonathan, as I'm hearing you describe this, I mean, one of the things that that kind of comes to my mind is thinking about these different categories of how Christians interact with with culture. Uh, so, I mean, one of the most famous expositors of that in the 20th century was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he had like these five categories uh, of how he categorized how Christians have interacted with culture. You know, there's the the Martin Luther type of view, which would be considered like the two kingdom view. There's the Kuyperian view, which would be more transformationist, as in Christians engaging and transforming culture. Uh, there's the Anabaptist view, which is more withdrawal. Kind of, how do you 
see uh, things fitting into these categories. Where do you think the the American church has gone in that regard? Uh, and and where are you arguing that it needs to go? Well, the 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 first half of our book, um, we lay out what I think is a uh, a rather bleak picture of where American Christianity is. I would I would dare say uh, that uh, s- some people have uh, said we have the spiritual gift of uh, discouragement, uh, but uh, you know it. For us, w- when we looked at this, we realized that the biggest threat to American Christianity in 2018 is not ISIS. It's not, um, uh, you know, a, a gay agenda. It's it's not the ACLU. It's not uh, secularism. The biggest threat to American Christianity in 2018 is American Christians. And so what we did with the second half of the book is said, well, w- let's go back to the earliest church and see how they did it. So on the Mount of Olives, when Jesus departed from the disciples and they're standing there, they had nothing. They had nothing at all. They had no political influence. They had no money. They had no power. They really had very little in the way of uh, education. They had no plan. They had nothing. As a matter of fact, two angels had to come down pretty much like kick them off the mountain and say, okay, boys, get to it. He's not coming back. And so how did they go? from nothing to 200 years later being a such a, an incredible force within Western uh, uh, culture. How did that happen? How did they go from zero to that uh, where Christianity became the official religion uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire? That's a very, in, in, in terms of growth from being a, uh, in a, a cult in a backwater Roman province to that, 200 years is a very short amount of time. And so that's what we spent a lot of time in, in the book is, is trying to figure out what it was that, that made them be able to do that. And the, the first thing, of course, is they were committed, right? When, when, when Jesus uh, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane gets arrested, they're not committed. They all flee, right? But here we are 40-something days later, 40, you know, five days later, 44 days later, and, and, and they are hundred percent committed. They, these guys are all in now, and every aspect of their being is about um, transforming culture, building the church, doing what, uh, being obedient to what uh, Jesus has called them to do, which is build the church. So that's one. But two, they were really in. They were clever in what they would do. They they set out to astonish culture and uh, do things that would just make. Um, the culture around them say, who does this? This is incredible. Who does this? So, for example, Roman culture uh, was, uh, history tells us that, and, uh, that Roman culture um, had, was, it was a culture of death. For example, they, uh, a major element of Roman culture was infanticide. So, m- most Romans did not name their children for the first 10 days after they were born because um, you know, you might decide you don't want the kid. It's too many mouths to feed, or we didn't want a girl, or, you know, any reason that they would uh, decide to abandon the child. And when they decided to abandon the child, they would put it out in the trash. They would put it out by the side of the road. They would put it in a field and expose it and kill it. And what early Christians started to do was pick up these children and raise them 
and heal them and bring them up in their own families. And Roman culture couldn't understand this. Who does this? Who does these kinds of things? And it was Christians who were astonishing them by their love and service to other people. When the plague would hit, Romans would pour out of Rome, running away from uh, things like the plague. Christians would run towards the disease, run towards the problem, trying to help people. And Roman culture, uh, scholars tell us, just didn't know what to do with this. And ultimately, it was these kind of astonishing acts of love and service that transformed Roman culture and made it possible for Christianity to rise. So we look at that as a model for, well, what can we do? We're not in the same position as, as the earliest church. We do have money and organization and numbers and uh, influence and things like that. How can we go now? What are the things that we can do now to astonish culture again? Because some of the things that we've done throughout history, um, uh, you know, education, creating of uh, hospitals, art, uh, philanthropy. I mean, these were astonishing things as Christians brought these into culture. What are the things now that we could do that could astonish once again? You quoted somebody in the book, uh, Warren Cole Smith and John Stone Street in a book called Restoring All Things, and, and I highlighted this in the book. The ideas that shape politics and a culture rarely are rarely advanced by argument. Rather, they are advanced by the stories that shape our imaginations. And I, I really like that last part because, you know, it's also to what you're saying here, like the the stories or the lies of the narrative that gets shaped by running toward the diseased and caring for them is what changes other people's hearts toward Christ. It's what changes them in in a like, oh, I want to buy that to go back to the kind of the marketing speak kind of thing. And, you know, I... As I grew out of more conservative Christianity, um, I I was told growing up that the gospel is an offense to uh, those. I think you, you quote 1 Corinthians 1.18, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and that it's not really our job to be popular or, for that matter, desirable. The seeker church movement was kind of uh, growing in the early 90s, and you know, the, the pastor, my pastor at the moment was at the time was like, oh, well, secret churches, they're just they're just uh, becoming worldly because they want to entertain and they want people to, you know, come into their church and they aren't really feeding them, you know, sp uh, you know, spiritual meat, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, when I left that and I thought, well, why wouldn't it seems to me that somebody would want to follow Jesus and why wouldn't they? And so there, this is what, you know, kind of attracted me to your book. Any Christian should be able to live a life that is savory to somebody else. Now I realize that that doesn't always mean everybody's going to like it. I mean, when, when there's true righteousness amidst darkness or there's true light amidst darkness, the darkness doesn't, doesn't like that. But so I, so I kind of understand that, but there is also the question and I can imagine some of our listeners may be wondering, well, what about this whole issue of being not conformed to the world and being attractive? And, and there's this sort of like, um, we don't want to become too much like the world to sell them Christianity because that's sort of part of the problem. Yeah. Well, let's start here, which is, we, we are known for being a fairly angry bunch right now. I mean, if, again, if you if you asked a lot of non-Christians what are words that they would use to describe us, angry would come up a lot. And again, back to the fruits of the spirit, we're not supposed to be known by that. <laughs> angry, angry is not one of them. Right, and frankly, right. 
I think we've seen uh, now time and time and time again that anger strategies do not work. Um, we've done a lot of protesting, a lot of boycotting, uh, a lot of angry stuff that has not moved the cultural needle. And if it worked, if anger strategies won people into the kingdom, why wouldn't missionaries use it? You don't see missionaries go to uh, um, foreign countries and boycott. That's not how they do it at all. It doesn't work. So right. we, we have come to the end of anger strategies um, working at all. Just because you're joyful doesn't mean you're diluting your message. Jesus was joyful. People, people were attracted to Jesus. He didn't dilute his message at all. Not one bit. So um, I, I think, again, this is the model that we need to go back to and say, how did, how did Jesus do it? How did the early church who, who saw him up close and, and then went out and were astonishing people with what they would do, what can we do in 2018, both individually and corporately, to start to transform the world again? And we for sure need to be in the joy business. We need to get back to that, um, uh, to, to, to being people who are known for our joy, uh, for, being, for having that peace that passes all understanding. And that needs to happen on an individualized basis. But on a corporate basis, what else can we do? So in part of the book, there's a, a few chapters of the book where Phil and I lay out some different ideas of some of the things that we can do as a community to start to astonish the world again. And I'll give you an example of one, which would be uh, the, the foster uh, problem that exists in our culture. The fostering children, there are right now 450,000 kids who are in the foster care program in the United States. That is a disaster. When you look at the numbers, 1% of kids who uh, go through the foster care system end up graduating college. 50% of them never get their high school diploma. Of, upon emancipation at 18, 25% of them will be homeless within the first year. 75% of girls who go through the foster care program are pregnant by age 21. And so this cycle of, of poverty, um, of not being cared about, of not feeling loved or special or anything at all. It just goes on and on and on. So we look at that probably as individuals and go, oh my gosh, almost a half a million children. What could we possibly do about that? Well, it does sound daunting until you realize that there's 350,000 churches in this country. And if you look at that and go, if every single church, if they could just find one family in their community to take one plus children, right? Some will take one, some will take, you know, a brother and sister. But if we did that, we could wipe out the foster care issue in this uh, country within a year, just like that. And that's the kind of thing that would astonish people. Nobody wants to see, there's nobody from the most religious to the most secular who wants to see kids in an orphan care program or forgotten by their parents. And so if we were to just wipe out the foster care system by giving loving homes, uh, to these families, that could make a tremendous impact on how people be, view the Christian community. Do you think Christians don't don't uh, get busy doing things like that? Because things like tackling the foster care problem is so overwhelming and large, uh, it just seems like it's not worth 
tackling or like, well, what can I do? I'm just a single individual. And I realize that some people reading your book are going to be leaders in their church. So they can't, they can't make an excuse in that sort of way. Uh, they'll, they'll probably come up with different excuses. Is it possible that it's just a matter of like, some of these things are way too big? Like, what are some things that if I personally want to change, change my tune, if it, as it were, or change my strategy, uh, what, what am I going to do? Because I'm not going to be able to solve the foster care problem myself. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the great and terrible things uh, that happened in the 20th century is that we uh, outsourced ministry to huge multinational ministries um, and organizations. And listen, you, you can't argue with the incredible impact uh, and life-changing impact that uh, organizations like uh, Samaritan's Purse and uh, World Vision and Compassion International um, you know, those kind of organizations are doing around the globe. They're, they're doing incredible uh, work around the globe. But we've also created a culture where we write a check to them and we let them do the hard work. And we have lost our, our obligation to love and serve others and be the hands and feet of Christ right where we are. So how can an individual get involved? What are the things that an individual can do? to, um, you know, if they can't tackle uh, something as big as the foster care uh, program, there's a lot of things they can do. First off, be a better neighbor. Um, one of the things that I, I uh, uh, confess about myself is um, about uh, two years ago, I was walking down my street with my dog and, you know, there's, what, let's call it 12 houses on either side. I realized that I really only knew the names of about people in about four of those houses. And other than like, you know, waving to somebody as they drove by, I didn't know the rest of my neighbors at all. So I decided to do something about it. And we invited all of our neighbors to a block party. And what we discovered is that they didn't know each other either. And so it's as simple sometimes as just throwing a party. Get to be a better neighbor. Get to know the, um, you know, the elderly woman down the street so that you can help her. So you can uh, go over and mow her lawn or help her with her groceries or the family next door who's just moved in. Um, and, you know, you have, uh, you know, a crib that you're not using anymore that you might be able to give them if they're uh, expecting a child. It's very simple little things like that where we can do it house by house and just go out in ripples around us. It, it doesn't necessarily require uh, every single thing. Uh, to, to be a, a, a huge uh, national campaign. It can be very small efforts. And you call this in the book, low-hanging fruit, right? Yes, for sure. Tell us a little bit about why the concept of low-hanging fruit is important, because you know, I, I really like that. It was near the end of your book, you talked, or maybe middle to end, uh, where you were getting into the fact that we deal with, uh, we're worried about convincing hardcore atheists, and that's not the majority of people, <laughs> you know, and people get caught up in, in trying to defend themselves against that versus what you call low-hanging fruit. Yeah, the low-hanging fruit is essentially the 50% of people who are calling themselves a, a Christian, but who aren't showing up to church. These are folks that, um, you know, again, are, are very, they're so comfortable with the idea of um, Christianity that they call themselves that, even though it's not showing up in their and their practice. And so it's not a question of berating those people back into church. It's simply inviting them is that maybe they haven't found a, 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 ch a church home. 
Um, no one's invited them. Um, maybe they had a negative experience in, you know, the high school department or, or you know, you name it. And or, or maybe they're feeling guilt or shame of something in their own life that makes them feel like, oh, no, I, you know, I shouldn't go to church. I'm not, a, you know, and there's a whole bunch of people who are very, very open to Christianity who just don't happen to be going to church. That is low hanging fruit. That is an easy invite. That's a simple like, hey, listen, you know, we're um, we're having a small group. You should come join us or we're all going out to dinner or why don't you come join us on Sunday? Come sit with me at church on Sunday. These are really, really easy asks. It's it's no harder an ask than someone who who tells you um, they're a baseball fan, but they haven't gotten to a game this year. And you say, well, I got some tickets. You want to go with me? I mean, that's not a hard ask at all. Uh, Jonathan, you do talk about politics somewhat in in your book and about how and and even covered it earlier in this interview how many in the american church have allied themselves far too closely with political parties and candidates and uh, political causes now our audience you know we're we're the libertarian christian podcast libertarian christian uh, institute Um, we're not affiliated with the libertarian party and some of our, our supporters and listeners don't vote at all. Others do. There's, we have members in, in the Libertarian Party and the Republican Party, and I'm sure in a number of other parties. Uh, our, what we kind of frame this around is the idea of not using political coercion to, to reshape the world is sort of how we, how we approach libertarianism. But from, from your perspective, to what extent can or should uh, if at all, Christians be engaged in the political process on an individual level, and how do you balance that out from this idea of allying too closely with one party or another or one camp or philosophy or another? Yeah, that's a that's a great and complicated question um, because you know, of course, we live in a binary political system. Where we have essentially two parties. I mean, all, uh, you know, all love to the Green Party and to the Libertarian Party and to the American Freedom Party, but we really—it's um, a—it's a two-party system, and uh, so neither party, a hundred percent of the time, is going to line up with um, with with a Christian agenda. It's just n- not realistic to think that. So, to answer your question. What Christians need to do, they 100% need to be involved um, in in politics and political endeavors. Of course, you should vote, and of course, you should be part of the process. But we need to be political free agents. We we need to align ourselves um, when it comes to the issues. If if we're looking at the things uh, through life through the lens of um, transforming yourself to be more and more like Jesus Christ— then that's not really, then that's not going to have really anything to do with a single political party. And so we need to be free agents so that we can align ourselves with, with those different issues as they come up, but do it from outside of being part of one political party or another. Jonathan, I want to thank you for being on our show today. The book uh, for our listeners, the book is The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Can Get It Back. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. 
Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also find us on Twitter at LCI Official. You can find us on Facebook and, of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.